Can't do the drapes. The drapes are too much for me. <laughs> uh, I hope you all had fun with the Duke game. Duke UNC. Big win. Who went out to Franklin afterwards? Yes. I wasn't here. I wish I had been. Um, it was really good times, it looked like. Um, yeah, so... I, assume, I just always assume that people who've been here longer than me, because I've only been here for like eight months, uh, were part of this or know something about this. But if you don't know, uh, a woman named Rosaria Butterfield came to UNC a couple of years ago to tell her story. And if you don't know her story at all, she wrote a really phenomenal book called A Trainwreck Conversion. Uh, but in the book, she describes this, that she was an English professor, tenured at Syracuse. Uh, she was a lesbian and a long-term relationship with her partner. And then she met a local pastor and his family, and they, over a period of time, loved her, um, spent a lot of time with her, and she really started to grapple with Christianity. And over a period of several years, became a Christian. She left her partner. Uh, she eventually married another pastor and, and now have several children together. And she talks about in her book, like, was that a long process? Yes. Was it difficult for her, and did it come with serious social, professional cost? Like, absolutely. Like, she left her community at great cost. People she loved dearly, people who loved her dearly, like, was, she kind of, like, closed the door on those things. And when I hear her story, I don't get the sense that the people around her were thinking as they started to talk to her about Christianity, like, this is the person who is right on the cusp of becoming a Christian. You know, like, blazingly intelligent tenured English professor uh, who, humanly speaking, has everything to lose and nothing to gain, uh, does not seem like the person that you would just think, like, this person is right about to become a Christian. But part of what makes the gospel such good news is that it's for everyone. And people for thousands of years have looked at God's work amongst his people, and they've just kind of thrown their hands up and said, you just don't know who can become a Christian. You can't predict who will, who won't. Like when you read the Gospels, you see Jesus saving very moral-seeming people and convincing them, you know, it's not your morality that will save you. And you also see Jesus saving very immoral people, tax collectors, prostitutes, and convincing them that it's not their immorality which will keep them out of his kingdom. There is no one who doesn't need him, but on the other hand, he can't take, there's no one whose sins he can't take away. And this has been true of God forever. Thousands of years ago, still today. God can save anyone. And if you were to look around at his people, like it's just we're just cobbled together from all sorts of different tribes and tongues and nations and races and socioeconomic classes. Like it's just a big motley crew. God's kingdom doesn't grow due to the quality of the soil or the people. But it grows because of the quality of the one who sows upon that soil. The one who sows the good news, which is God himself. And the trouble for us, though, is this, that from our perspective, there's some very rocky soil out there. We can look at non-Christians in our lives that we love deeply and think, okay, taking into account the way that this person has been mishandled by other Christians, and the fact that they have full-out embraced uh, a view of sex or sexuality that runs way counter to the Bible, and that by their standard of morality, like, they're doing pretty good. Like, I'm not sure that inviting them to my community group Bible study is going to do much good here. But tonight we're going to look at a passage that says, actually, do invite them to that study. Because it's not the kind of person 
that determines who will and who will not be saved. But it's the goodness of God. So tonight we're going to look at three things that a good God uses to save people. His guidance, His means of grace, and His gospel. His guidance, His means of grace, and His gospel. Before we start though, like what's kind of happening here in Acts? You know, if you haven't been with us the last few weeks, that's fine. But we've been going through the book of Acts and looking at mission and looking at the way that, okay, if Jesus is who he says that he is, if he's done the things that he's done, how does that shape our lives? And thus far in Acts, Jesus has given his spirit to his people so they'd be empowered to go preach and teach his gospel. He's formed this people into a living, vibrant community that loves itself, loves other people, loves God. But there's been difficulties too. The apostles have been beaten. Uh, right before this story that we're about to read, we're not going to cover it this semester, but you can read the story of Stephen. He's the first Christian martyr. He's stoned to death. And his death ignites this wave of persecution against this fledgling Christian community. And this persecution causes them to disperse out from Jerusalem, where they've been concentrated. And as it continues, though, you see that it's this persecution that's the very means by which God brings people to himself. And so that's where we start right here. A persecuted Christian meeting a guy that you wouldn't normally think could become a Christian. Okay, good? All right, roll tape. Let's read Acts 8, 26 through 40. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this, Like a sheep that he, he was led to the slaughter... And like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down in the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let me pray for us here. Father, um, whenever we come to your word, we need help. We need help to understand it. We need help to see you and your work clearly especially the work of your son, Jesus. And Lord, I pray that as we come tonight, we would not try to stand above your word, Lord, but that we would stand beneath it and be corrected by it, and be shaped by it, and be molded by it, so we could see and hear the God who is good, and the God who saves people, who guides people, who uses his means of grace. Lord, who uses his gospel uh, to bring people that you would never think could ever come into his kingdom to himself. And Lord, we rejoice in this, because we rejoice in you. And so, God, I pray that you would come and dwell with us, your people, tonight. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Okay, so where do we begin? Let's start by looking at the eunuch here. 
What kind of guy is the eunuch? He's African. He's from Ethiopia. He's a very high-ranking court official. He's in charge of the treasury for the queen. So when you think of him, think of someone who is very well-educated, very hard-working. Think of him as like the top banker in the country or kind of the head of the Federal Reserve. He's kind of a big deal. But he's also a eunuch, which means that he's either chosen to become a eunuch or had that choice made for him. But regardless, his life is his work. Other than a mother and father and possibly some other relatives, he will never have a family. He will never get married or have children. And because of who he is and the way that people understand his position that he had to be a eunuch to take on that post for the queen, from the moment that people meet him, they would know that he is very different from, different from them in a way that is intimate and very painful. He's a perpetual outsider. Furthermore, he's not Jewish, but he's made a very long, very arduous trek from Ethiopia to the Temple of Jerusalem, and he's on his way back. But here's the deal. Because he is a eunuch, he can never fully enter into the part of the temple that everyone else can. There are, there are kind of rules against that. And because he's a eunuch, he can't become a proselyte to Judaism. He can't, in his mind, kind of enter into fully the God, God's people there. So even traveling a great distance, he cannot get away from the fact that he is on the outside. Q. Philip. Why is he here? He's here because the angel of the Lord has told him to go, and so he went. This encounter doesn't happen on Philip's initiative. It happens because of the initiative of the Lord. And this is important to note because sometimes from our end we can wonder, you know, is God reluctant to save people? Like I hear about his judgment. I think about my unbelieving friends and family members that I love deeply. And I think, doesn't God care about people? Like where is he? What is he doing? And we can sometimes have the sense that we care more about the people in our lives than God does. And that we would do anything to make sure that those people are saved. But God is the one who's kind of laid back about this whole like making sure that people become Christian thing. But rest assured, the point of this story and every other story in the Bible is not about how clever or wise or persuasive God's people are. It's that God is not reluctant to save anyone. And that He's quite willing and quite able to guide His people in playing a role in that salvation. I mean, if you were to look back at, at, through the Bible at the interaction of God and His people... Say, for instance, if you were to go back to Deuteronomy, a book in the Old Testament, it's the book that I sometimes do the benediction out of, you would see God speaking and saying to his people, like, okay, when you get to the land that I promised your fathers and you drive out the peoples there and you are full and you own your own houses and you're no longer anyone's slave, you're going to be tempted to think, this is because of me. But don't think that. I'm giving you these things not because you're the most numerous or the strongest, or the wisest, but because I'm good. And he gives everyone out of his goodness. All of us, in some way, are freed from slavery to sin. You know, we don't have to have lived in Egypt to have been slaves. And we're not freed because of our intelligence, of our prayer life, of our morality, but because God is good. Or consider this. North Carolina, and I just learned this fun fact the other day, North Carolina has the highest proportion of people Anywhere in the world who are descended from Scots, from Scotland. If your last name starts with a Mick, you're probably Scottish somewhere along the line. At the time, yeah, this is a weird fact. At the time that Philip is meeting this eunuch, 
The people who live in Scotland are called Picts, P-I-C-T-S. And they are wild people. Like when the Romans fought them, they would strip themselves naked, paint themselves blue, foreshadowing Carolina, and, <laughs> and grease their hair with lye. They were like they would have like big greasy hair, blue naked guy running at you with an axe. They were terrifying. And almost everyone in Northern Europe is like descended from this sort of ancestral legacy. But God looked at that whole continent of kind of wild barbarian people and said, I want these people. I want these people. And so he went for them. And for thousands of years, he's guided missionaries all over the world so that he could look at nations like the Scots, like people in Africa, like people in China, like people in Korea, and he could look at them and call them his people. And if you're here and you come from a family that has been traditionally Christian, it's probably because at some point in history, some other Christian looked at what God had done in the world and said, this is good news. I can't keep this to myself. I need to share this with other people. And then that person took the risk to, the, to do that very thing with your ancestor. And maybe that person got killed, and maybe they got a drinking holiday named after them. But, it's St. Patrick. <laughs> but regardless, here we are. Okay, but most of us have friends and family who are not part of some sort of like obscure tribe that's never been in contact with Christians. Like, what about them? You know, somebody once said that all truth is God's truth. That the God who made air, light, colors, and food hasn't left himself without a witness in every person's life. And theologians have called this common grace. And it's the idea that God is so good that even when people who live in a free country with relative means who get to tailgate at UNC with the people they like the most in the world and then go and watch that game and use God's name as an exclamation point at the end of the sentence... Like, he still treats them with kindness and allows them to work and enjoy the good things in the world that he's made. That just by nature of a person participating in the true things of this world, like food is good, friendships are great, the elegance of mathematics, the beauty of biology, people aren't cut off from the truth and goodness of God. Like, it is for Christians to prayerfully ask God, who are the people that you are calling me to love? Like, God, guide me to know that thing. Who needs this gospel? Like, who should sit in Hamilton next to me? Or who should I approach about inviting to my community group? God is guiding Philip to the Ethiopian here, but Philip still has to get up and go. Where does God want you to get up and go to? Think about this. When Philip gets this Ethiopian, what does he do? First of all, look at what he doesn't do. He doesn't shake his finger at him and say, you better turn or burn. He's not demanding anything. However, he also doesn't look at this guy and say, you know, he's reading Isaiah. I think he's got this one. Like, Philip doesn't shirk away from the idea that he has responsibility in this person's life. What does Philip do? He's meeting the eunuch where he's at, and he's expecting God to work. Philip's expectation is that God will not abandon him if he has brought him into this person's life. And but how often is that true of us? You know, like how often do we say to ourselves, you know, I love art, I love artists, I just wish that God did too so it wasn't me here in the trenches by myself. And we get afraid and we feel like it's all on our shoulders and we do sort of this like kamikaze evangelism where we just kind of fly into people with one big dramatic act and end up leaving a lot of wreckage in our wake. I mean, I've done that before. 
Or we can say, you know, like, I love my brothers. I love my sisters in our fraternity or my sorority. Like, they're bright, they're funny, they're hardworking. Obviously, they love some true things. Given enough time, I think they'll get this whole Jesus thing on their own. But you have a part to play in that person's life. And you can't run away from that. What we need to do is act with the expectation that God will show up. And that because this person loves something good and true about the world, that in some way he's already shown up and he's leading them towards truth. So you can be intentional in a person's life knowing that God is intentional. Like, don't think that your job is to create a crisis so that someone will turn to God, right? Like, life in a broken world brings crises on its own. But your job is to love the people that God's guided you to and to find the means that God has used to communicate truth into a person's life and then trust God as you help that person find more truth. Like, think about this. Science does an amazing job of describing what of the world, like how fast light travels, what are the chemical reactions necessary to make medicine, like how strong does a steel beam need to be in order to make a truss, like all those things like I'm terrible at, like science does a really awesome job with. <laughs> but it's not as much help when telling you like the why of the world. Why does it hurt when you break up with somebody? Why is it important that to save, for you to save a life through medicine rather than to take that life? Why is there this innate sense that my life is about something rather than about nothing? Like Christians believe that to love those people well is to help them read the truth of the world and that all of their what's and all of their why's ultimately lead up to the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Look at verse 30 here. So Philip ran to him, the eunuch, and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? You know, your friends may not be reading the Old Testament and asking you, like, interpret this for me. But they are reading the world. They're asking themselves big what questions. They're asking themselves big why questions. Guide somebody. Be, play a part in someone's life. You can do that. Ask God, show me where do you want me to go. Give me the strength to go there. Okay, but where does the gospel come into play? Right? If guiding people towards truth is a process, then what's the end goal of that process? Look at verses 32 to 33 here. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. And his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Alright, so the eunuch is reading from the Old Testament prophet Isaiah. Actually, chapter 53 here. Which people have looked at and said, you know, like, if you want a good, like, Old Testament encapsulation of what the gospel is, read Isaiah 53. It tells you the what of Jesus. It tells you the why of Jesus hundreds of years before his earthly ministry. And as I was studying this passage this week, I couldn't help but think, all right, what must have been like for the eunuch to be reading this? Because the prophet is talking about someone who is treated barbarically, for whom justice is denied, who because of his treatment has no children, like his generation is cut off from him. For a man who can have no children himself because of the service that's been required of him, 
For a man who's been maimed in a way that's more common to farm animals that you want to stop from breeding than to people, how could he not be wondering, who is this about? Because for someone who has always been an outsider, it sounds like this is a word for me. You know, this is left out of Luke's writing, but if you continue reading this prophecy from Isaiah 53, then it becomes obvious that this is a person who suffers on behalf of others. That by his blood he makes intercession for transgressors. And this is open to anyone, to many. Like, you don't have to have a certain record or resume. Or you have to be, like, a physically pure whole person to get in. If the eunuch had read a little further, and my guess is that if he's reading Isaiah 53, he probably did, because he only has to read three more chapters to get to Isaiah 56, he would have read this. That to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, to those people who hold on to what it is to be part of God's people, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. Like, think about somebody who could never experience what it would be like to have a son or a daughter. Like, you just knew when you got up at the end of the day, or at the beginning of the day, when you went to bed at night, like, doesn't matter if I meet today, we're not going to get married. Doesn't matter what happens today, I'm not going to have kids. Like, his legacy may be a professional legacy, but he doesn't have, like, a legacy of family that's going to come after him. What would that have been like? I think really hard. And yet what Isaiah is saying here, what Philip is pointing this man to is that there is something better that God will give you than sons and daughters. That God will give you himself. That all the what's of your life, the work that you've done, the way you've either been maimed or let yourself be maimed so that you can serve in this high up position, the longings of your heart to have children, something better than that is here. It's in Jesus and to love someone as a Christian, and to feel a sense that God has guided me into this person's life, and to watch a person grapple with the true things in this world, you know, that's a great privilege. But to hand them the key to not only the what of the world, but the why of the world is even better. You all, the good news is good news, not just because it's news that sets people free, because it does do that. But what makes it truly good is that it points to the one who is good. It points to Jesus. Like, look at the evidence for that here, that God is guiding people to share the truth of His Son with other people. People who'd be excluded, people who'd be outcasts, people who don't have anything coming after them. He's giving Philip the means of grace in his word. Like, he is sitting out and he's reading the Bible with the guy. And he's meeting this guy where he's at. Like, why wouldn't that God also come as a man? and leave it all on the court and die for this person. He is that good. He is so good that when he could have been invulnerable, he identifies with the weak and the maimed, and he makes himself nothing on a cross. He saves the person whose life is devoted to work by calling them to rest in him. He saves the person who is maimed and an outcast, and he feels like their life is thrown away. That is how good he is. I'll end with this. I don't know if you saw Adam Lucas' story about this past Thursday's UNC Duke game on GoHeels.com, but it was really good. And I don't, I'm not a sports guy. I don't pretend to like read a lot of sports blogs, but I do sometimes. And this one I felt like I had to read because I didn't get to watch the entire game. But he talked about the buzz in the Dean Dome before the game started. 
he talked about the back and forth kind of defensive battle between these two like Hall of Famer like basketball coaches. Everyone staying up in the second half, yelling, "Stop the drive! Make the free throw!" With the final kind of slow, steady march of victory for the Tar Heels, and then all this was like kind of capped when everybody rushed the court. Like he talked about stuff, and like as a newbie fan, I read it and I was very excited. <laughs> like, I can get behind this. But the thing that really got me was at the end of this article. And he described what happened at the end of that night. Like, Adam Lucas is the guy who's writing this. He talks about it as like, he's exhausted. The players and the coaches are exhausted. Most everyone has gone home. And Marcus Page has just kind of finished his final interview of the night. And he's walking back to the locker room so he can finally take a shower He's played a game hot, 37 minutes under the Dean Dome. He's like soaked through with sweat. His jersey's untucked. He's 20 years old, but he's walking with like this old man limp. Because he's like, he's literally left it all on the court. And then he hears it. He hears this small voice call out, Hey Marcus. And it's a 12-year-old boy with muscular dystrophy named Anthony Hernandez. And two weeks before this, Marcus had spent a day with him. And Anthony will never play a game of basketball in his life. He's completely confined to a wheelchair. But he's decked out in Tar Heels jersey, Tar Heel hat. He's covered in blue. This is his first game at the Dean Dome. Can you imagine that? Like, your first game at the Dean Dome is to see UNC beat like this. It's a pretty good start. Um, and when Paige sees him, though, like, as tired as he is, as exhausted as he is, he's been answering questions from reporters. He's like played his hardest, like really the game of his life so far. But he looks at this kid and his fatigue just turns into this ear-to-ear smile. And he bends down and he looks this kid in the eyes. And he puts his arm on Anthony's shoulder and he asks him, what did you think of the game? What did you think of the game? And Adam finishes his story by saying, Anthony asked Paige to sign his jersey And of course Marcus did, because he's Marcus Page, and that's what Marcus Page does. (laughs) You know, don't be surprised that Jesus died for people who struggle to get him, and for outsiders who are hurt and weak and don't bring much to the table. Of course Jesus did that, because he's Jesus. He reconciles people to himself all the time. So go to Jesus every day and just bring people to him. And invite them to him. Invite them to where he meets you in his word. Like, you are not alone. In anything that you do with people, you are not alone. And you are not helpless in the face of a beloved person's unbelief. You have a God who not only made the world, but who sustains the world and points all truth back to himself. You have a God that died to bring people into union with his truth. With himself. Will he work with people? Will he help you? Will he save the people that you love? Of course he will. Because he's Jesus. And that's what he does. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness to us. Lord, that you love us and you care for us. Because you're Jesus. God, because you make yourself nothing on a cross for people um, who can be hard towards you, who can be callous towards you, Lord, who don't have great prayer lives, who don't read the Bible every day. God, you love us with an unflinching love. 
God, you love us with the kind of love that you set your face towards Jerusalem to die on a cross for us. And God, that's a powerful thing. Lord, would you give us some of that love to help us love the people in our lives? Would you give us some of that love to wash the feet of the people in our lives? To meet them where they're at, wherever they're at? Not to heap condemnation on them, not to try to throw them into a crisis, but Lord, to love them as you've loved us and to love them into your kingdom. God, would you be with us in that? In your sins, name we pray. Amen.